Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. So a lot of kids stuff is happening today um, at our church. And so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about discipline today. Uh, Actually, that's just where the text falls today. We are talking about discipline. So I guess it was about a month or so ago, my youngest son, Ames, he's five. I had to get on to him, had to ground him because he uh, ripped the power button off of my remote. Just the power button, right? He was, he was sitting there in the chair and just watching TV and somehow just popped off the little power button. I don't know if you know how frustrating it is to have a fully functioning remote that doesn't have a power button, uh, but it's very frustrating. So for like three weeks, uh, we had to keep up with just the little tiny power button uh, so that we could still use the remote. So we kept it in the little console of our couch, and anytime you wanted to turn on the TV or off the TV, you had to get the power button out of the console, put it in the remote, push the button, and then make sure it goes back because you can't lose that. It's very important, right? So. It's really frustrating. And uh, you know, last week we were able to get a new remote from Amazon, everything is good now. But when it happened, I had to ground my son. And, you know, I was like, you can never touch another remote ever again the rest of your life. Don't, don't touch dad's remote, you know? And he cried and it was a whole deal. But anyway, you know, how many of you would say you grew up getting in trouble? Yeah, come on, we, we can admit it. And look, we're all better for it now. We all turned out pretty good, right? I got in trouble quite a bit. I went through this stage of life. I I feel like I was a good kid. I wasn't doing anything really bad. I wasn't, you know, selling black tar heroin on the playground or anything like that. But I went through a season where it felt like daily I was was in trouble. It was almost like my dad would just be like, good morning, son. Go ahead and come on in here. We're going to go ahead and get this out of the way because I know you're going to need one uh, at some point in the day. there was, a, there was about a week in there uh, where my dad was out in the shop a lot during the week and I wasn't sure what he was doing. He was building a custom paddle for our home. He sanded the thing, varnished it and everything and he used it a lot, right? So I went through that as a kid and I remember as a kid thinking, man, my dad's mean. He doesn't like me or something, you know? But then now I have kids and I understand what happens uh, when a parent is disciplining, disciplining a child. Right? It's for their good. You're trying, to, you're trying to raise them up in a way so that they don't end up in a prison cell later in life. Right? That's, that's the point of discipline. And so I want you to just think about this. Have you ever thought about the fact that God disciplines us? You know that he does, right? God disciplines us, and it's probably not, uh, it's not about maybe something um, that, that just kind of came along that you didn't bring about. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. I'm talking about like you did something, you sinned, you, you goofed up in some kind of way, and you're facing the consequences of it. God disciplines us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. And so the point this morning, I'm not really interested in talking about what that discipline may look like in your life. 
Again, I know that there are seasons where you're walking through some hard stuff and it's probably not discipline. Jesus actually talks about, you know, they, they, uh, there's a blind man and they, they, they question, did he do something wrong or did his parents do something wrong? And Jesus is like, no, he's just born blind. And so not every hard thing that you face is discipline from God, but God does discipline us whenever we mess up. There's consequences for that. So again, not interested in talking about what it actually may look like for you, but what I want us to talk about and think about over the next few minutes is what God might be doing through the discipline, okay? That's what, we're, that's what we're looking at. So to set up Jeremiah chapter 50, in chapter 46, just a few chapters back, God says this, chapter 46, verse 28. He says, I will bring destruction on all the nations where I have banished you, but I will not bring destruction on you. He's talking to the people of Israel, the people of Judah. I will discipline you with justice, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. What he just said, and kind of the main point of what we're looking at today is God's people will face discipline, but those who oppose God will be destroyed, all right? So children of God are disciplined. Those who oppose God are completely destroyed. And that's what we've seen in this book so far. The first 45 chapters of the book of Jeremiah has dealt with the discipline or the judgment that Judah has faced for their, for their sin. Right? That's what we've been following. They were exiled to Babylon because of their sin, right? In chapters 46 through 52, things change, and God begins to zero in on all of the other countries and nations that are around him that, that aren't the people of God, and he says, I'm going to destroy you. And in chapter 50, he zeroes in on Babylon. So that's what we're going to see. Before we read our text, I would like for us just to pray and ask God to speak to us in this moment. So I'll pray for all of us. You just pray for yourself. Ask God to speak. God, we want to just pause and ask that you would speak to our hearts directly through your word, through the spirit. Would you reveal areas of our lives uh, that don't align? God, would you help us to see that discipline is a good thing? It's what a loving father does, and it's for our good so would you help us to hear from you? Would you help us to have ears and eyes and a heart that's open to you this morning? We're listening. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 50. Look at verse 17 with me. We're going to read just a few verses here, starting in verse 17. It says this, Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria, the last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So Assyria comes into the, to the nation in the north, Israel. Whenever they split in the two kingdoms, Assyria wipes out Israel. I think it's like 150 years later. Don't quote me on that. But Babylon comes in and wipes out Judah in the south. That's what verse 17 just said. Verse 18. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. I'm about to punish the king of Babylon and his land just as I punished the king of Assyria. I will return Israel to his grazing land and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He'll be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, one will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none. And for Judah's sins, but they will not be found for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. Now, I want us to just break this down and look at this passage together, we see two things. We see a punishment, we see a promise, really. So first, number one, we see a punishment for his enemies. God is going to punish his enemies. We see that in verse 17 and 18. Specifically here, chapter 50 and 51 is zeroed in again on Babylon. 
It's like, why does he want to just utterly destroy Babylon? What did they do? Well, we need to have a little history lesson. And if you've been with us in in this series, we've talked a little bit about this, but chapter 52 of the book of Jeremiah really tells the whole story of what Babylon did to the people of God. Chapter 52, you could read that later today. I'll summarize it for you. The, The king of Babylon is a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. They come into Jerusalem and they, they use this ancient war tactic called laying siege, all right? They laid siege to Jerusalem, which basically just means the, the army of Babylon camped around the, the walls of Jerusalem for about six months. And the reason an army would do that back in the day is they had these big walls and they had their army on the inside and whatnot. So a, an army would camp around the walls. They would lay siege to it in order to starve out the people on the inside. Nothing can come in, nothing can go out of the walls. And so this army's out there for six months and the people on the inside are starving to death. And after six months, like they, they've grown so weak and so, so vulnerable that the people of Babylon, the army comes in and breaks through the walls of Jerusalem. And when they do, the army that's inside Jerusalem's walls, they scatter, they leave, along with the king of Judah, a guy named King Zedekiah. He runs off and leaves. King Nebuchadnezzar's army chases him. They catch King Zedekiah, and what they do to him is ruthless. They they capture the king of Judah. They line up his sons in front of him. They slaughter all of his sons, and then they gouge out his eyes and blind him so that the last mental image he has is of his sons being slaughtered. They then take King Zedekiah back to Babylon where he dies in a prison cell. So that's what they did to the king. Meanwhile, they're infiltrating the walls of Jerusalem. And what they're doing is they are burning down the the temple of God, the king's palace. And it says, quote, all the homes of the people. So that's happening in, in Jerusalem. That's chapter 52, verse 13. They burn down everything. Before they burn down the temple though, They go into the temple and they take all of the valuable things out of the temple. They take anything that's gold and silver. So all of the bowls, all of the cups, all of the lampstands, anything that was used for the worship of God in the temple, they steal it and take it back to Babylon. Remember that detail, okay? Remember that. So they're burning everything down. They're stealing stuff from the temple. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem and then they deport most of the survivors back to Babylon. We've talked about that, it's called the exile. So they take them from their homes some 500 miles away back to Babylon and say, this is your new home. They leave a few people in Jerusalem, some of the poorest to kind of pick up the pieces. That's what they did. That's why in chapter 50, God says, I'm gonna destroy you now, okay? And in our Bible, we get to see that take place. Daniel chapter five. Daniel chapter five actually tells us the story of when this happens. I want you to see it. Daniel chapter five, verses one through four. After King Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's a guy who takes his place called called King Belshazzar. And he essentially throws this big drunken party to say, I'm the new king. Here's what it looks like. It says, King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, all right, so they're drunk, Belshazzar, gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that 
the king and his nobles, wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So can you picture it? This new king in Babylon has taken over. He's thrown this drunken party and he's using the very things that he stole from the one true God's temple in Jerusalem. He's using all the bowls, all the cups, all the, all the gold things that they stole for their drunken party. And then they are praising their false little gods. So it says, made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So it's idol worship. So it's just a picture. It's a scene of just complete arrogance, complete depravity. It's, it's total and complete direct opposition to God. That's what's taking place. And then in the midst of all that, um, they're all drunk, they're all having a party, and all of a sudden the Bible says, it's like something out of a movie, this hand appears and starts writing on one of the walls. And the hand writes three words in Aramaic. It writes, mine, mine, doubles those words, tekel and parson. What those words mean is mine means your days are numbered and they've come to an end. Tekel means your life has been placed on a balance and you've come up short. And then parson means um, your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and Persians. That was the message that the hand wrote along the wall and it happens that night, that very night in the party. Uh, the Medes and Persians come in, they break through the walls, they attack Babylon. King Belshazzar is killed, Babylon is destroyed. So what God said in Jeremiah 50 has taken place. Babylon the great is destroyed. And it shows us that all those who oppose God will be destroyed, okay? So there's a punishment that happens. And then number two, there's a promise. In this passage, verses 19 and 20 shows us there's promises for God's children. So if you've been with us in this series, you've been reading Jeremiah, maybe it's felt like God was for Babylon and against the people of Judah. Like a little bit, right? It's felt like God is maybe team Babylon. You know, he's talking about using uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about putting compassion in, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He's, he's, he's using all of this type of language and it feels like maybe God is for them and against his own people. But here in chapter 50, we clearly see that's not the case. God is against them. They are the enemy of God. Why? Well, the rest of chapter 50 kind of lines it out. God hated their pride and he hated their cruelty towards his own people. That's, that's where they messed up. And so God uses them as a tool to discipline his own children. How many of you know, like there's a giant difference in destroying an enemy and disciplining a child, right? There's a giant difference there. Like disciplining a child, if a parent disciplines a child, it's not done out of anger, it's done out of love, right? When you discipline your, your kids, you're not doing it because you hate them. You're not doing it because you're angry at them. You don't get any enjoyment out of it, but you know that it has to be done. Why? So that you build them up. You, you, you tear down what's broken and rebuild it with good. Right, so just a side note, all right? 
Parents, if you don't discipline your kids, you're not doing them any favors. In fact, you're setting them up for failure, right? And kids, you just need to know that if your parents discipline you, it's not because they hate you, they love you. And I know that you've heard them say that, but hear me say that as well, right? Your parents love you. That's why they discipline you. There's a giant difference here in destroying an enemy and disciplining a child. And that's what God was doing to his people. He was disciplining them as a good and loving father. So there's a couple of important things about their discipline. First, their discipline was deserved. They, they did some stuff and they deserved punishment. Uh, chapter two, verse 13, really kind of summarizes all that, um, all that they had done, all that God had against his people. Jeremiah two thirteen, God says, uh, for my people have committed a double evil. He says that they've abandoned the fountain of living water, he's talking about himself, and they've dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold water. Essentially what he's saying is they've turned away from me and they've turned to all these other fake little gods, idols. And those things, they hold no water. There's no satisfaction in those things. So that's what the people had done. So, so the discipline of God was completely deserved. But second, like the discipline was always meant to restore. It was always meant to build them up to strip away what didn't belong and, and to restore them. We see it in the calling of Jeremiah in chapter one, verse 10. God tells Jeremiah, he says, I've appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, but then he says, to build and plant. You see it? The goal of the tearing down, of the destroying, of, of, of the uprooting of their lives was to eventually build and plant them. Jeremiah 29, it's the famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. We've talked about it quite a bit, but whenever God is telling the people in exile, he says, I know the plans that I have for you, not for your disaster, but for your good. I'm promising a future and a hope, right? You remember that? Remember the context. Verse 10 says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you. So it's gonna take 70 years of time out. You're gonna be in exile. A lot of you are gonna die in Babylon, but the goal is restoration. Pastor by the name of Alistair Begg, who I really respect a lot, he says this, discipline is a privilege because it is the evidence of sonship. Do you hear that? Discipline is actually a privilege because it's evidence of our sonship. So like, I don't, I don't discipline your kids, you know? That'd be kind of weird if I did, because <laughs> I'm not their dad. I, they're not my kids. Now, if I see them running through or something, I might be like, hey, let's not do that. But if my kids were doing that, all they gotta hear is this, and they stop. Why? Because I'm their dad. They know my voice. It's my job to discipline them. And I've seen some of you, especially you moms, like you got a face. I've seen you give it to your kids, and it's scary, right? And they know it. And so, so that's, that's what's happening there. Like, I don't discipline your kids, but, but I discipline mine. So if you are disciplined by God, you should praise him for that. Consider it a privilege because it means you're his. It means you're his. And that's what we see next. God calls them lost sheep in this passage. 
He paints a picture of his, his, his people out wandering in exile as being lost sheep. In verse uh, six of chapter 50, God says, my people, right? So even though they're in exile, even though they're being disciplined, they didn't stop being his. My people were lost sheep. Their shepherds led them astray, guiding them the wrong way in the mountains. They wandered from mountain to hill. They forgot their resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. They're like lost sheep out there. Verse 17 of our passage um, says, Israel was a stray lamb chased by lions, devoured by Assyria, and then had their bones crunched by Babylon. So he's saying that they're his, they're his sheep, and, and they've been like sheep without a shepherd. They've been in a faraway land. They've been in exile. They, they feel scared and abandoned and forgotten. But here in chapter 50, the good shepherd is calling his sheep back home. And we see the promises of him. He gives them two promises, a promise to return and a promise to relationship. That's what he says first. He says, your discipline, your exile is over. It's time to come back home. Verse, verse 19, come home, graze in the pastures that you were promised. It's a picture in this moment of, of God's protection, his provision, and the peace that he offers. So they've been out like sheep without a shepherd and they've been in, in exile in Babylon, in faraway countries, and now God's saying, come on back. I'm gonna protect you as my own. I'm gonna provide everything that you need. Uh, uh, graze in these fields. That's what those four cities are. Uh, feed on Carmel. He's not talking like a Carmel Sunday or something like that. Like, that's a place that was known as just lush fields as far as you could see. So come on home. So it's a promise to return, but then it's a promise to relationship. See, Jeremiah describes in verse 20 the forgiveness that God is extending. He says, in those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, one will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none. And for Judah's sins, but they will not be found, for I will forgive those I leave as a remnant. See, God is extending forgiveness and in this moment, like forgiveness doesn't just mean that God's not mad anymore. He's not just like, yeah, whatever, just I, I forgive you, but get out of my sight, go do something else. Like this is, this is completely different. This forgiveness is a welcome mat that God is throwing out and he's saying, come back home, live in relationship with me. So you need to know on this topic of forgiveness that forgiveness is always costly. It always costs something. When someone sins against you, there's a debt that is created, right? So if they, if they hurt you in some kind of way, if they took something from you, if they harmed you in some kind of way, it created a debt. Something is owed. And if you forgive them, you're taking that debt on yourself. So for example, if somebody lies about you, and they damage your reputation, and you completely forgive them, you are taking the debt on yourself. There's no way they could possibly correct and rebuild all that they did to you. You're just taking it on yourself. You're eating the cost of it. Forgiveness is, is always costly, right? That's why you, you can see why this is such a big deal for God to say, I forgive you completely. I forgive you. They had turned their back on God and, and toward these fake little idols, they cheated on him and God says, I'm forgiving you completely. Like it, you can look for your sin, it's not gonna be found at all. It's completely wiped out. 
He says, come home. I haven't forgotten you. It's a picture of a relationship with a father to his children. And it reminds me of the story of the, the prodigal son. I don't have time to get into that story, but I'm sure that you've heard it. This, this son who runs away from home, squanders everything that he had, and the father is waiting for him on the porch every single night to come home. And the son goes and he wastes everything and finally comes to his senses and he goes, I wanna go back to my dad's house where I can at least just be one of his servants. And he prepares this little speech and he tries to go back and he tries to even deliver it, but the father sees him coming and it says that the father runs out to meet him. And as the son tries to get into his little speech that he had prepared, the father says, no, he throws his arms around him, takes on whatever is, is, is in a pig pen on himself and says, bring the ring and bring the robe because my son who is gone has now come home. Like that's the picture here of the father welcoming them back in. It's a relationship. So this, is, this passage is what you would call prophecy. It's in the genre of scripture of prophecy. And prophecy is usually like there's a partial fulfillment that happens for the people in that time, but then there's the ultimate fulfillment. So the partial fulfillment of this, of God saying, there's gonna come a day and you're gonna come back home and all that, like that happens. The people of Judah are released from exile. They come back home. Um, and, and you can read that in, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what's happening there. In Ezra, they're coming back home and it's the rebuilding of the people of God. In Nehemiah, they're coming home from exile and it's the rebuilding of the city and of, of the walls. And so this happens, there's a partial fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment of this, of complete forgiveness, of coming home to rest with the Father, the ultimate fulfillment of that is in the new covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago, Jeremiah chapter 31. It's in the complete forgiveness that God was offering that was still on the horizon. That's why he says in verse 20, he says, at that time, like there's a day coming at that time. He's pointing to the new covenant, the new promise. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. I will forgive them completely once and for all. And remember, forgiveness is always costly. It's always costly. And so for him to say, at that time, there's a day coming where total and complete forgiveness is coming your way. This points us directly to the cross of Jesus. Directly to the cross. See, every single person, every single person in this room, every single person on earth is born an enemy of God. Did you know that? That's what Romans 5 says. It says, outside of Christ, you are an enemy of God. Like, that's strong language. He's putting you on the same playing field as Babylon, an enemy of God. And so our sin must be paid for, and, and the, the forgiveness of our sin isn't free. And so because forgiveness is costly, God pays the debt himself. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to this earth, lives a perfect life. He lays down his life on the cross to pay for our sin and extend this welcome mat into the family of God. His death, his resurrection paved the way for you to know him. On the cross, Jesus was crushed for us. He, he took on the, the, the penalty of an enemy. Isaiah 53 verse four says, Jesus, it's foretelling of what he would come to do. Another prophecy, it says he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. 
Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. See, on the cross, Jesus was destroyed. He was crushed so that we wouldn't be. Think of it this way. God treated his son like an enemy so that he could treat his enemies like sons and daughters. That's the good news. That's the good news of of the gospel. And through his work on the cross, through his work in the empty grave, he throws out this welcome mat to every single one of us. He throws out this welcome mat to every single person on earth and, and says, come on into the family. Trust me. Trust me for your salvation. Ask me for forgiveness and I will grant it completely and you will be in the family. You'll find protection, provision, and peace. And so this morning, I'm really talking to two groups of people. Talking to two groups of people. The first group is is if you are not a follower of Jesus. Like if you don't know him, and here's what I mean by that. I'm not talking about those people who would say that, yeah, I just, I, I've, I've always been a Christian. I know the things to say. I, I, I've just always been a Christian. Listen, that's not a thing. <laughs> that would be like me saying, I've always been married. That's not true. There was a day, there was a moment where I declared my vows to my wife, Abby, and then I became married. You're not always been a Christian. That's a weird thing to say. It doesn't make any sense, all right? There's a moment, and have you had that moment where you have trusted Jesus as your savior, declared once and for all, I need your forgiveness, I need salvation that only you offer, and today I'm accepting that. Have you had that moment? If you've not, Bible's clear, you're an enemy of God. And one day, if you stay on that path, you will be destroyed. You will. See, Babylon, all throughout the Bible, Like we just saw in Daniel chapter five, Babylon is destroyed, right? But throughout the rest of the Bible, Babylon always represents those who are in opposition to God. In fact, they're talked about in the book of Revelation where, where John is talking about, look, I saw and Babylon the great was destroyed. What's he talking about? He's talking about those who oppose God, those who stand in opposition, those who are enemies of God will be completely and utterly destroyed. But you need to know that even though you stand as an enemy of God this morning, he extends a welcome mat into the family. Through the blood of Jesus, through his cross, through his sacrifice on your behalf, you can trust him and you can have relationship with God. Just this morning, the best way that you know how, the best way that you understand it, you just say, God, I'm trusting you for my salvation. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. I'm vowing to follow you with my life. And if you do that this morning, scripture says you will be saved. So that's the offer. It's a beautiful picture of adoption. Enemies of God coming in and becoming sons and daughters of God. The second group of people I wanna talk to are are those who you are Christians. Like you know Jesus, you've trusted him. I need you to understand this morning that a loving father disciplines his children. And so I don't know what it is that you're going through this morning. If you're going through some hard stuff, I'm not saying that it's discipline. I'm also not not saying that. (laughs) It might be. You maybe have done some goofy stuff. You maybe need to repent. You maybe need to come back to him. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to shape you more into the likeness of Jesus this morning. 
But just know that discipline does not mean that God doesn't love you. It's actually the opposite. Because he loves you. He disciplines his children. He's refining you and shaping you. And so it may feel like he's destroying you. But if you're a child of God, you need to know he's disciplining you and it's for your good. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.